Graphic Policy Radio, the podcast where comics, geek culture, and politics meet and have a debate. And who comes out in the end will be as a victor as anyone's guess. That's actually not usually our tagline. You'll have to excuse me for that. Um, but yes, comics and, and policy and public issues are the things that we talk about on Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, tonight, I am joined with a special guest. Uh, we're talking with Rebecca Ray Epstein about her promising debut graphic novel, Gently Murder Me. It's a diary comic about the inability to connect with the person one most wants to connect with in the world, uh, the modern technology-filled world. Uh, writer Rebecca Epstein's words are con- enhanced by Catherine Briggs, Blake Inberg, Edgar Vega, and Mary Safro's varied and equally skilled styles in the first four volumes, which involve full diary entries. The fifth is a collection of illustrations done by nine artists, giving readers a peek into the lonely mind. Sad and dark but relatable, Gently Murder Me seeks to find definition in the world through human longing. We'll be talking with Ray about her unique approach to making comics, as well as her critical writings. Um, and I would just say, you know, like when I, when I uh, finished reading them myself, I immediately said that this is interesting because it's a series that is so deeply personal, uh, but also incredibly universal because it's about having your heart broken, which is something that most people experience in our lives. So everyone say hello to Rebecca. Hey. Hey. Hey, Lana. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, I actually, I was remembering, this is your first, like, you know, like large piece of work, but you had done a shorter comic as well beforehand, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, um, Ruby's is like a lesbian vampire comic with Sally Cantorino, and that was about, in total, including cover to cover, like 14 pages long, but it was like this cute little mini comic about, um, and it was mostly silent about those two lesbian vampires getting together. Cool. Very different from this work. (laughs) Yes. But needless to say, yeah, you're definitely somebody who's new in terms of comics making, although has been in comics world for quite some time. Um, what made you uh, decide to do this particular work as a comic? And what about working in the comics medium appeals to you? Um, well, I decided to enter comics making in general, and I guess that turned into everything I'm writing into making comics. I've been writing fiction since I was eight years old, so I've been, I've been in other mediums before, like short stories, prose, etc., um, but comics is my home now, so comics it is. Um, and I decided, to, I decided to make this one a comic, Gently Murder Me a comic, because um, it was just an impulse decision, really. It was something that where all my feelings had, like, pent up deep inside me and were about to explode outward. And I wasn't very fond of those feelings, so I wanted to give them to artists to make them beautiful, mm-hmm. essentially. So this is an autobiographical comic. Um, it's, you know, a, a much more about feelings than an experience that you're going through, not like a, a narrative story with, you know, uh, plot points and stuff like that. But uh, it's definitely it's really personal and like I said, like really universal because what you're experiencing in it is something that I think most of us can relate to. Um, I don't want to like speak for everyone, but I do think that most people have had their heart broken in a relationship at some point in time. Um, When you're going to be doing autobiographical work like this, like what, 
kind of consideration you take in terms of like opening up your personal life to the public and, you know, how do you think about what is the public face you want to show of yourself when you're creating it? Well, I've opened up myself uh, to the public in the past. I've written a bunch of personal essays that are tendentially comics related um, about my mental illness, about um, being a woman, about uh, a ton of things. And I guess I just don't see much of a reason to hide my personal self, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like it's good to be open and honest with your feelings. And I think it's something as a society that we could benefit a lot more from. Um, But in terms of exposing myself, it's not something that I'm super concerned about, I guess. I think I'm just like, as I said, very impulsive and I don't, and I want to like give people my all versus, um, kind of shielding it, shielding people from it, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what was your process on this? It sounds like it, it kind of began as some diary entries and then sort of took on a life of its own. Yeah. So um, I basically ed- typed them all out. I edited them. They were like a, around the first five entries of the diary itself, not the exact five entries, but around then. And I typed them all up. And I edited out all, like, identifying details. And I went, like, well, I don't really want to give too much guidance to my artists because I want to, like, kind of filter it through their experience as well and have them be able to apply their own broken hearts and their own um, kind of their own path into my path. So I just gave them the pros as is and said, do whatever you want with this. Choose the layout. Choose how many pages you want choose the style, the materials, try to be as experimental as possible, which is about the only direction I gave because I really like experimental abstract comics, but otherwise, Mm -hmm. like, you know, go wild. Um, And that's essentially how the process went. Um, And they all took very, very different paths, including the illustrators. And overall, um, I'm very proud of what each and all of them came up with. That's really cool. So definitely a question of like, you know, how do you choose your collaborators on that? Um, and, and, how do you, and, uh, and how do you think about who do you want to partner with with these sorts of things? How did you, how did you create the team of folks that you worked with on this? Um, I put out a Twitter call, actually, and it was very, very successful. Like um, a lot of people asked to be part of it. And I essentially looked at all the samples and said, yes, I like this person. Yes, I like this person. Um, Catherine was the first person who, she was like one of the first people to reach out to me, Catherine Briggs. She does uh, the first chapter, such a creep. And she's like, I do experimental comics. And I was like, okay, I want you immediately. Hmm. Come, come do this with me. Um, and I remember with Edgar Vega, he sent me like this really nice professional email. And initially I looked at his website and I only saw certain samples. And I was like, oh, he could do the covers for me, which he ended up doing. But then when he sent me that email and he gave me, like, all these other samples, I was like, wait, you're incredibly varied. And I have – he. I think he had, like, the most difficult part to translate because it's, like, in this really weird list format in which I was trying to make a list for myself to kind of talk myself back into sense. So he ended up doing that one as well. And I remember with Mary Safro, who did the last uh, short part um, – 
there was like one of her characters falling in the sample that she sent me, and I was like, oh, I relate to that falling, and that's how I ended up choosing her. So, you know, I chose everyone for like their different reasons, but essentially, if I was, if I felt that their work was applicable in some way um, to the words I was writing, then they were definitely suited for the role. Hmm, cool, cool. I definitely noticed like. In some of the chapters in particular, you know, you really are incorporating a lot of the modern digital communications mediums that we use in our lives in really explicit ways in the comic. Like you have a lot of Twitter conversations referenced in there. You actually like reference the structure of Facebook posts in it, uh, text messages. Was that something that you discussed with your artists and why was that important to the story? Yeah, I remember having to discuss with Catherine because she was like, how do you want me to show the text messages? And initially we were going to go with um, text that I made, but like made up, like not actually the real text. Hmm. And uh, eventually due to timing, she ended up not doing that. But also I'm like really glad we didn't because I felt like it would have been inserting fiction into this thing that's supposed to be like very factual. Mm -hmm. Um. So that's how we incorporated with her. There was like, there was talks with Edgar where I asked him to swipe in a photo of a pug with a photo of my actual dog, and it ended up much cuter for it. <laughs> much much cuter. Yeah, your dog for does it. make an appearance. He he's made, he actually makes an appearance in Catherine's as well. I want to like immortalize his dog into all of my work if possible. Um. So, and then I think it was mostly on Edgar's side that we see a lot of that stuff. Um, and then Blakely did um, all the autocorrect stuff on their own. And that was, like, one of the coolest things I ever saw where it was just, it changes from, like, these relevant relevant um, insertions from this AI into just, like, cursing and, like, reflecting my inner, like, narrative, which is, which was like brilliant. Blakely is brilliant. So mm-hmm. we just had, we had really good we had really good discussions about frontier and how we wanted to borrow from that kind of experimental style and it was just it was really great working with them on that. That's really cool. I liked that those pages in particular. Um I also with the collage pieces and there's been parts cut out from a newspaper and also parts of uh, romance comics sort of collaged into it as well, which I thought was a a nice reference to the genre that you're kind of messing with here. Yeah, that was all Catherine. She has like a pile of papers that she keeps like in her desk and she like cut them all up and like put them in a bag at random and shows them at random. And she just like reassembled them into uh, the pages in order to represent like broken pieces being put back together. Oh, that's really cool. I definitely think going, it evoked that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they all came up with like brilliant stuff for each of their pieces. Mhm. Mhm. And I also thought that the um, particularly like uh, with the second, the second chapter, like the just the really the way you guys are using the sort of the screens that we look at in, in digital communications. I just thought that was like really good for the pacing of how you were telling it. 
and then it, like it, it's really part of the paneling that you're doing. Yeah, Blakely is really, really excellent at um, screen stuff in general. Um, I feel like they are also really emotional, that the characters reflect what's going on on the screen instead of, like, you know, blankly looking at it, which is uh-huh. very true of how we use our actual computers. You know, like, we're not, we're not usually staring into them. We're usually, like, reacting to them as if they're actual people. And I feel like they, like, really capture that. And we're, like, able to, like, really, as you said, use it for pacing, use it for, like, drama and tension. And I really appreciated, like, what a good job they did um, mm-hmm. in, their, in their piece. Yeah. But, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I wanted to do a sci-fi uh, project with them at some point because they would be so good at that. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. I can definitely tell that from the art. Yeah. Um, with writing the with doing autobiographical work, it's like really from like your journal, from your diary. Like, how did you determine what of the things that you had written, of which there's many, are interesting or narrative enough to select to be illustrated? That's a really good question. Um, I remember starting um, the project idea with the IUD line in such a creep which was, mm-hmm. like, uh, my IUD is preventing me from getting off sort of thing because it was the sort of thing where you don't really see in a lot of comics. Like, we avoid, women naturally avoid, like, talking about their anatomy mm-hmm. because of stigma in our society. So sometimes you get, in, like, indie comics, you get period stuff. Sometimes you get vagina stuff, but, like, I was not properly prepared for my IUD and all the side effects that it, cause when it was initially when I initially got it and which is a bummer among other -hmm. things that being a woman (laughs) a cis woman (laughs) is um so I started with that one for that reason because I thought it was um different and provocative and educational in a sense Mm -hmm. um and then I ended up I think for Blakely's I would it, it was the next that was the next entry and it followed, and for Mary, it just felt like that kind of closure that, um, you know, that you really, really get where you start, you're, you have a new perspective after suffering and enduring something so difficult where you're like, okay, maybe I can survive this. All I need to do is change my perspective and become um, a different person because of it. And I thought that that was a really good closing for the short stories. Yeah, that's a section um, called Tomorrow was not my Tomorrow was my goodbye. Yes. Right. Yeah. That was because there was a there was a, it wasn't the very end. Like for life there isn't a clean opening and closing. Um so I was still hanging on a bit after that comic, um, which is what the title refers to. But I think the general attitude and the intent behind it was pure at the time and it was worth capturing because it has that kind of that pureness that isn't necessarily in the comics prior to it or even in the illustrations after it Hmm. Uh, are there any particular like comics writers whose work inspired this particular piece 
Yeah, um, Sarah Ferrick, who now goes by Margot Ferrick, releases like really wonderful graphic novel called Yours through uh, 2D Cloud House Publishing, and she wrote about her own unrequited crushes um, in abstract expressionism form. Uh, she's like really brilliant. Like she's why I wanted the comic to be experimental because there's just something so affecting about her work the way that she uses, like, different colors to, like, really make you, to really shock you and to, like, loop her words and to, like, create tension using just, like, random colors. It's, like, really impressive what she does, um, and I really admire that. So that was, she was definitely a, an enormous influence on this book, which I appreciated. I appreciate her work so much. What's her name one more time? Uh, Margot Ferrick. And the book is under the name Sarah Ferrick. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not someone who really reads a lot of comics of that nature. Like, I don't really know a lot of people doing autobiographical work. Um, it's just not something I'd really looked at too much. So I, I know that there's because folks like Robert Crumb. I mean, that was such a huge part of what he did over time. Um, and that's some of the work that's most like celebrated by the sort of critical class of independent comics. But you don't really see biographical work by women getting as much attention, generally speaking, even if they're talking about things that are just that are <laughs> more uh, relatable, perhaps. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, like I, you know. Aileen Tomsky, you know, is someone who who comes to mind from doing like being an autobiographical like woman writing comics, mm-hmm. but completely different tone. Like, um, I don't really like Phoebe Glocker is somebody else who folks talk about a lot, but there just isn't. It seems like it's like an area of comics where there's a lot of women working in it, but it sort of is separate from the from the um, the broader like comics criticism world yeah right yeah I feel like Allison Bechdel is the one person who like really really broke out of comics using autobiographical work and I mean as she also should because Fun Home is absolutely brilliant Um, but yeah it's pretty notable that um, most of the comics including I'm going to forget her name um, she's friends with Aline Kaminsky. What is her name? Diane. Oh, shoot. I have to look it up. Yeah. Diane. She, like, she um, made those miscarriage comics because she miscarried twice, and they were incredibly brilliant. Oh, look. Hold on. Diane Newton, right? That, yes. I think yeah. so. Yeah, so there's that, there's like that stuff, but it's like super underground still, and it's not like, it's not like crumb underground, like celebrated and well known. It's all kind of shoved underneath like comics history and or shoved into like women's comics. Not that Mm -hmm. women's comics are bad. It's just that, you know, Fun Home isn't called a women's comic. It's like the segregation that's not fair and kind of becomes a block on the way to the mainstream 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wish I really wish that stuff were different. There's a lot of diary comics that are coming out nowadays through in, in indie comics. Like I know that Kat Fajardo has one about being Latina and the struggles behind that. And there's always um, tons of diary comics in Mocha and Small Press Expo when I come around. There's a lot of suicide comics I've noticed. I find uh-huh. this particularly touching because they're just, it's something that people like really feel the need to share, like hmm. their attempts or their suicidal ideation. And it's interesting because they're always so affecting and yet so different in a lot of ways. And I think in a lot of ways that they, a lot of them tie back to hope at the end, not all of them, but some of them do. And which is an interesting concept. I think we always want to end stories on a hopeful note even when they're dark and upsetting. Um, but yeah, I've noticed the same as well. On the upside, autobiographical comics, when you do break through, like Persepolis, I suppose, is are like some of the most highly celebrated comics in mm-hmm. the entire medium. So there's that plus side at the very least. That's interesting, true. Yeah, it makes a good case for for the medium. I mean, what what appeals to you with like as like a as a consumer? Because I you know you're someone who goes to small press expo, expo and really does follow independent and really personal comics a lot. I'm like, what is it about this genre that like is is really compelling for you? I think that there is a veil with fiction. Uh, I very much believe that you can see someone through their books um, and even through their fiction, even through their fictional characters, and that you can see them. But there is something very much more direct and honest and brave and different about nonfiction in diary comics um, because that person isn't putting all this work into telling you a story, into weaving a narrative. Um, and while narratives can be entertaining, and especially in this time, it's important to like have empathy for real people um, mm-hmm. and to be able to experience the world through like real eyes. Um, I think that's why personal essays, as a matter of fact, are so popular nowadays um, and why uh, writers like Roxanne Gay are so huge right now. It's because like we're we're coming to a globalized society that um, where everybody's closer together and it's very much in order to cooperate you have to be empathetic and to be empathetic is to be sharing your own story and to be listening to other stories and I think there's a lot of power in that and while there's a lot of power in fiction it's a slightly different responsibility and I think people appreciate that um which isn't to say that I like every single autobiographical comic I pick up. Like, I wasn't a huge fan of a couple I've read, for sure. Um, Mostly because I like to, like, really, like, really feel people's feelings when I read something like that. Um, And there are certain books that are just, like, still very, very shy when it comes to that. Um, Hmm. But when there's an open and honest, and frank tone to this kind of writing. There's something very compelling about it um, that no fiction can really give you. 
Yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel like that was true reading your work. I mean, and it really brought me back to my own experiences that I like to sort of keep housed and shelved away and compartmentalized out of my, you know, daily thoughts. I'm like really averse to thinking about those moments from my own life. So it was very like, yes, I relate to this so much. That's not usually something I let myself feel, you know. Yeah, it's always, I still think about those moments too, and they're always excruciating. But, um, I mean, they're a part of you, you know. They, like, really build you to be the person who you are. And they're usually pretty fundamental building blocks and going forward from them. So while it's not always nice to think about them, it's hard to not appreciate them being there. Hmm. At least in an objective way, in a sentimental way, it's you wish it would just stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so uh, what? How did you get interested in comics in general in the first place? Uh, Raimi Spider-Man movies. Actually, mm. <laughs> I was 12 years old when the first one came out, and I was like, I want to read more. Um, and what was really nice about the, um, God, what are they called? The extra, the extra material on the DVDs that there uh-huh. was an intro to Spider-Man comics um, section that introduced the Venom and the Rhino and all this stuff, and they explained like very famous and basic Spider-Man plot lines. And I always really liked Venom, and I was really excited for him to be in the third movie, but uh, didn't quite end up like according to plan, like we were all hoping. No. No. Um, And then when I was 18 and going into college, I got into comics full-time through one of my exes. exes. And um, I got into DC through them because DC's um, original graphic novels are like kind of standalone books are a lot more accessible than Marvel in my experience. So I got into them and then I found through a friend eventually that he was really into indie comics and that there was a world beyond superheroes and that's how I ended up reading a ton of indie comics. And this is mostly where I am now. Hmm. Do you have any um, really under-the-radar suggestions for folks? Uh, Sarah Farrick, yours, like I suggested. Um, I really like everything by Eleanor Davies. Um, her, her comic Libby's dad is like the most nuanced thing I've ever read from a Liddy's, really suburban Liddy's perspective. Dead? Can, can you say that again? Libby, Libby's dad. Mm. So Libby's dad, L-I-B-B-Y apostrophe S-D-A-D. Mm. Um, Eleanor Davis is brilliant. Um, and then, of course, the Timothys came up through, um, you know, web comics. And Noelle Stevenson came out through webcomics, and mm-hmm. I still think Nimona is really wonderful. I love Nimona so much. So, um, I always find a little gem too, um, in some in always at the cons. I think I found Mel Gilman through Small Press Expo. I'm not quite sure. It might have been FlameCon, and their non-binary mm-hmm. zine is like incredible like yeah it probably was one of the best comics i read in 2016 
Mel Gilman, I've not read the nine binaries, Ian, um, but I, I, I did share that recently on, um, they're like, I was a Kickstarter for it, right? Yeah, for As the Crow Flies. That was, um, uh, oh, no, there's that's also, for, oh, Mel, was, Mel was on our podcast just a few weeks ago, so I hope folks will go and listen to that just for um, As the Crow Flies. Uh, for that Kickstarter. But I thought there was a different one for the non-binary comic. I didn't realize that was just available already. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I know I picked it up at um, a con somewhere, and then I know that um, Planned Parenthood locations, some of them actually use it for educational tools. Which That's is so awesome. cool. Oh, my gosh. I should have mm-hmm. talked about that when they were on the show. But, yeah, As a Crow was amazing. And folks who haven't listened to my interview with Mel should go back and listen to it from a few weeks ago. Um, anyway, no, that's really cool. And then I always know that like we first connected, I guess we both like had lots of things to say about the wild storm summer spell, but that's another story. But, um, uh, I do sort of, you're definitely one of the, like, folks our, think of first. <laughs> I, I do think of you as being one of like the main, like wild storm people, like who actually has something to say about that work on a creative level rather than like, a lot of the fan conversation around it, which seemed to be primarily about breasts. Nothing against breasts, but there isn't that much to talk about. Like, there's breast-related character development that can happen in certain things, but just generally speaking, like, the existence of breasts and their size is not the number one creative concern that I have with respect to <laughs> a genre of work. But, um, but yeah, you're definitely somebody who I've talked about old school Wildstorm with a lot, and. Um, you're also like the main person who I've talked to who I've heard from about like the Wildstorm rebirth. And I wasn't sure what you were thinking about that. If for folks who don't know, Wildstorm was an independent um, universe specifically started by former Marvel and DC guys who, uh, you know, coming, coming through the, the image era of uh, we're going to do our own thing. And no one can say no. Nineties uh, ness And, um, Gosh, that was the most dismissive way to describe it, and I apologize in advance. Uh, but anyway, um, now, like, and that's where, you know, Wildcats, The Authority, Planetary, which are some of, like, of the really most important comics of their, of their time, came from that batch of work. And um, now uh, Warren Ellis is back at um, DC Comics, uh, DC Bought Wildstorm, which is why we have Midnighter in the DCU. And uh, Warren Ellis is writing a comic called Wild Space Storm that I don't actually know a damn thing about, but you've been the main person writing about that. If you want to give folks a little bit of a sense of what you think is, if you, if you think it's worth reading and what the heck it's about. Yeah. So it's like the only ongoing I'm picking up right now, actually from the direct market, which is mm. a great compliment in my opinion, but also I'm like completely obsessed with the world. So uh, the wild storm world. So there's that. Um, so Wildstorm is about setting an entirely new universe that is adjacent to the DCU. Like, it's a lot more related to the, um, the heroes that we know from the main DC universe than, than it used to be. Um, and essentially, it's a prediction, a kind of prediction about our future, which is that everything is very corporate-controlled, and eventually they're going to start investing, like Facebook and Apple and all, and all these companies, are going to start investing in military-grade weapons and start kind of having these, like, little Game of Thrones, like, politics between each of them as they're all racing to, like, have the best technology and, like, 
in, and try and like you know, kind of do sub, subterfuge on one another. And in the middle of this, there's this engineer for one of the companies, Angela Spica, and she has stolen a bunch of the, her company's tech and has inserted it into her own body and has into her own bones, as a matter of fact, and is incredibly painful to use. And she uses it because she sees that one of the one of the founders of the one of the competing companies is being tossed out of a building, and she goes to save him. And everyone realizes, oh my God, you have this tech that you're not supposed to have, and they go to run after her. And she's like the most human, like heart-filled, like actual good person of the entire uh, book. So you like really feel for her situation. But it's actually the world is kind of like terrifying because it's like very close to ours and I would definitely pick it up because it's like it's like I'm not sure if I would call it a new Transmetropolitan at all because it's Transmetropolitan with such a different tone and Derek Robinson's like style is not like John Davis Hunt at all but like there's definitely a lot of real world considerations that are going into that book that we may not think about in our day-to-day, and I would definitely pick it up for that reason. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, it's been on my list of things to check out, and I haven't had a chance to. I'll probably take a look at it. Um, because, yeah, I really love more Alice's stuff at Wildstorm pretty much all the way through. You also seem to be doing a bit of a DC Comics reread, um, offering some commentary on that that I've seen on Twitter. Yeah, I need to get back into that um it's been a nostalgic ride because i read all these books like when i was first getting into comics and i i genuinely don't remember a thing about them which is not a good sign it was i was either reading them poorly or they're not very good books and then i when i'm rereading them i'm like yeah these are not very good books um, and I hate to be that snob when everyone's like, oh, this is a classic, it's perfectly written, it's just, it's that idea, and it's, like, influenced so many comics afterwards, and I'm just, like, reading it, and I'm like, they're fine, they're, and it's good that you like them, but um, I think my tastes have grown and changed so much now, like, I just, I'm not interested in the house style, I'm very not uh-uh. interested in even like realistic style anymore like my taste has leaned more towards like um feminine which the industry desperately needs more of like just like softer colors um more experimental more abstract use of art like it seems like there was going to be some kind of revolution you know back in like the 80s when they had like dave mckean and you would have thought that they would have followed through on that, but instead everything just seems like very dull, in my opinion. And you just uh-huh. kind of wish that there were more actual, I don't know, like more different differentiating styles in the industry. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this. But, I'm, but I totally agree with you. Like if you look to see who are some of the really big breakout artists, even in like mainstream comics, like, people get enthusiastic about artists whose work stands out, like Babstar, right, whose background is in, like, fashion illustration and who has a very, like, cute style and understands clothes and understands how to draw different kinds of women's bodies, you know? Like, it, it's that's where there's mm-hmm. appetite for something new or there's something different. House style is not yeah. usually bringing much to the table. 
it just seems very limiting to, I mean, house style can be interesting when, like, I don't know, Ivan Rice was a big one for me when I was first getting into comics because his style imitates a very cinematic feel, and that's a Mm -hmm. good transition style. Um, If you are a person who up until that point has only watched the movies, then his style is really great because you're basically watching a movie in, in book form. Um, oh, that's an interesting I found point. When I, yeah. And when I found when I was first getting into comics, I really hated The Dark Knight Returns. Like, everyone hailed it as, like, the thing you should read. It was taught in my graphic novel class. And I was just like, oh, my God, I hated that book so much. I only came to appreciate it, like, when I read comics for five years. And there's just... It's um, so yeah. It 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 depends. It there are some elements to house style that are, I don't know, at their best at like Ivan Rice level, I suppose, have their practical value. Um, but and I feel like Frank Quitely like really influences the uh, not Frank Quitely. I'm sorry. Oh my God, that's the one I actually like. Um, I feel like The Dark Knight Returns still like heavily influences house style nowadays, but like not necessarily. Mm-hmm not always the good parts of it. Like there's some, there's still a very narrow appeal to it. Um, I, it's not like, I don't know, Saga. I feel like Fiona's, Fiona's like style and Saga is so, I don't know, innovative, but soft and like very, just very attractive to women. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And non-binary mm-hmm. people. There's a different, her style is like, like remarkably feminine. Um, and I feel like that's why Saga is such a big draw to a lot of people. Um, so, well, I don't it's, know. It's, like, it's, it's healing and its aesthetics are like not based on the assumption that you've spent your life like looking at superhero comics and hold that to be particularly compelling and good art. You know, like I, my dad, yeah. who I've always been on his case to get it, to read comics and who just doesn't read comics. Um, he like Saga is like the thing I finally got him to read. The artist painterly, it doesn't presume that you look at superhero comics as like the norm of what art comics art should look like. And, and the people are actually attractive rather than like a caricature of attractive, which I think is part of the appeal for Fiona Staples' work. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, like I'm willing to. I, I, I'm, I'm my own reviewing. I critical talk. I can totally talk about like. I generally like things that are pretty. I admit that. And like, what does that entail? And also, like, what, what, what do I think is quote pretty? Like, what is that aesthetic? So definitely, there's artists whose work I don't think is pretty. Who it always takes me a lot longer time to get into or support or appreciate, but that I, I can come around to, and have. Um. Because there's not just one value for art, but pretty for me is the easiest thing for me to, like, immediately catch my attention. Yeah. I mean, that's why Monstrous is so popular right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just the story. It's like, holy crap, like, Sanic Takeda's art is like, what the hell is this? How do you do this? <laughs> It's and it's, I mean, it's just, gorgeous. yeah, totally. I mean, and her art reminds me a lot of the art from Final Fantasy, right? Like from the Final Fantasy, not like from the video game, which I actually have never played, but I remember looking at the promotional art that would like run around it 
and it looks like those paintings sort of, except like a steampunk version of it. And that is art that a large swath of the population has been acculturated to look at as aesthetically pleasing. Like Final Fantasy was a massive phenomena, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the watercolors and like the translucence of the colors in that um, and a very anime-influenced style as well. I mean, definitely when you look at anybody doing doing contemporary independent comics, like you really do see so much influence from anime and from video games. Yeah, a lot of Scott Pilgrim style there. Mm-hmm. I don't really... It's interesting because I'm reading a lot of manga right now, but I find when it comes to Western comics, I don't really gravitate toward manga influence style nor do I is, I don't know yeah just I don't know leave that to the experts in Japan you know <laughs> I mean manga is so good I feel like you can learn a lot of lessons from manga and take them over that a lot of people haven't done although incidentally um, I feel like Warren Ellis' style is like highly influenced by manga due to like the level of decompression that he um, uses and of course with the authority with Brian Hitch, they introduced like widescreen style together, which is a manga technique. So back to Wildstorm on that one, like a little loop to loop on our yeah. conversation. No, yeah. that's exactly right on. I mean, I mean, what is it that like, certainly manga has like a huge range of subject matter that we don't get in mainstream comics, but that you do get in independent comics in America, generally speaking. But I mean, what else about it speaks to you? Um, I feel like there's a lot more of what I've read, a lot more slice of life stuff, you know, um, a lot more of what you would consider young adult fiction. Um, I'm reading one right now called Solomon, and this is Inio uh, Asano, and I've read two of his other books, and he is really so good. And this one's about a girl who quits her, like, really bad corporate job and, like, doesn't know what to do with her life. And I'm like, oh, you're exactly like my group of friends. Like, hmm. we're not all quitting our jobs and, like, wandering around lost, but there is, like, a definite form of, like, unmooring and, like, floating that is, like, very, very, very typical of people my age. Like, just this, like, not knowing what you want to do, not sure where you belong, not sure how you can give back to this world. And Fallen and like really reflects that. And I feel like Inio Asano is also like very, very, um, very nervous of global warming and climate change and huh. all what's going on in the world. And that like that that's always like underlying his work. That anxiety of oh my god, are we going to die? <laughs> and the answer is yes, Asano, we are. But that's okay because you make really good comics out of it. <laughs> but it really take a lot of um. I try to take a lot of panel um, strategies from manga where I can. Um, for Full Metal Alchemist, for instance, like um, Harimu Arakawa uses um, conversation, and she will often um, use two panels of the same size, and then she'll have like each character. She'll have each character in the conversation in, in each panel, and I think that's a really interesting way of showing like equivalency in a conversation. Like, um, not one, it's, it's usually when no one's saying anything particularly, like, more important than the other. 
but um, I try to borrow a lot from her just because Full Metal Alchemist is brilliant, and you can learn a lot from that book in general. Like, it's, it's globally beloved for, like, a reason. Really cool. Yeah, I've never seen it, actually. Uh, sort of Alana, you aware of it that. existing. So I'm terrible at manga. It's just like a whole different world I haven't explored. You can watch it on. You can watch it as an anime too, which is how most people get into it. Yeah. I'll, I'll get you. I'll get you to watch or read it. Thank you. <laughs> I, I I do need a mentor to help me like get this stuff because it's just not ever my priority. Oh my god, I can give you Rex. I'm still a baby to it as well, but I know what I like. So we'll see noted, what you like. Noted. Yeah, no, I have like a whole bookshelf of Lone Wolf and Cub that is sitting there because it's my husband's that I have not actually cracked open at any point in time. Yeah, I know I'm a terrible comics person for that reason. Um, no, that's okay. <laughs> do you have any um, any comics critical work coming up? You had a really great interview with Warren Ellis not that long ago in The Guardian. That was a pretty big deal, actually. Um, I yeah. think you probably had his first conversation that you had after the elections, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, did I really? I think well, so. That's wild. <laughs> I did not ask him about anything political-wise at all, because I think, I don't know how he feels about it, but I want to avoid it. Um, I'm actually writing for Comics MNT. Um, coming out next issue is my interview with Noel Gilman about As the Crow Flies. So um, oh, I'm excited cool. about that because I really wanted to get a chance to talk with them about their work and how they choose those like beautiful, like silent moments. Like I don't, I, you didn't read As the Crow Flies, right? No, I have. I interviewed Mel about it on the show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I haven't, I haven't read Mel's comic about being non-binary. I, I just read as a crow flies. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I interviewed them about it as well. And it was just, I really wanted to know about the color pencil choices and why everything, like how they got that quietness to work so well. I just really love the structure of as the crow flies a lot. So it was good. I'm glad we both had the opportunity to get to know them. Hmm. Totally. Um. So, what is what is MNG? What is sorry? What is that publication that you said it's coming out in? Uh, Comics MNT. It is uh, Christian Hoffer, Megan Purdy, and Steve um, Horton's um, uh, comics newsletter. And if you give them a dollar on uh, Patreon um, every month, you get the newsletter, and it's like a really awesome, awesome project because. Um, you get up to date on all the global news that's going on in comics, not just the American comics, although you also get like very sharp opinions on, you know, the latest controversies um, that always seem to pop up and you get, they have an obituary section. So, you know, like there's a lot of deaths. It's important to know who died. (laughs) It is though. You're right. Um, Yeah. And they always have a contributing columnist in an interview. Um, and they have had really powerful, and they've had really powerful stuff. Last month they had um, John Eric Christensen talk about um, fat characters in comics. Oh, that's um, great. And John is great. That was really insightful. Yeah, he's really mm-hmm. wonderful. So 
that was really insightful. So I definitely recommend finding them on Patreon and just giving them a dollar because it's worth your reading every month. Excellent. Also, well, I'll be, be looking forward it, so. to that. Yes, exactly. I'll be looking forward to that. I'm always interested in seeing how different sites are monetizing and like working on supporting their own work. Yeah, they're going to launch a website soon, so it'll be interesting to see. For sure. It was really, really hard to monetize. Yeah, we really, like, don't – graphic policy, that's just not something we even try to do. I mean, both have careers in other areas, and it gives us a certain amount of freedom to say whatever the hell we want about the industry also, but it also means that we don't no, – nobody, nobody's getting paid, so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know that feel. Although, except for The Guardian and Comics MNT, all the um, outlets I've written for don't pay either. Cause yeah. They might they might get a tiny bit of money. They might be in the green technically, but that's not enough to like pay all their contributors. Yeah, it's wage. like to pay for the web hosting, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, you're definitely someone who reads a lot of the similar uh, comics uh, criticism to myself. I know because we operate in similar Twitter circles, but I don't want to presume that our listeners necessarily. Um, are checking out all the different, uh, like, really, like, smart essayists that are going around. Obviously, I tell everybody to go to Graphic Policy. We have amazing folks writing for our site. You've also done work with Women Write About Comics, which I've done a little bit of stuff at myself. Comics MNT. I'm going to be checking that out as well. Um, yeah. And I used to write, I'll still write a little bit if I have the opportunity for Comics Bulletin. Mm-hmm. And there's great editors at that site. Um, I would always check out Danielle Elkin's work, um, Jay Michelin's work. You've had her on the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Chase Magnet's work. They're all like really just smart, insightful people in their own ways. And I love reading always what they have to say about the latest. Definitely. Well, if you have any uh, other thoughts about like where I know like you're a big advocate for folks to go to small press expo to sort of see what's happening on the indie scene. But if you have other thoughts about like, you know, what stuff our listeners should be checking out that might go off the radar, I know we always appreciate those recommendations with a little bit of a description about why. Okay, for sure. Um, You want more right now? Sure. Uh, I'll have Blue Delaquanti's uh, webcomic, Oh Human Star. Uh, oh, yeah, you told me about that, and it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, you tried it out? Yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. For your listeners, it's about a trans robot girl and her two dads, and it's the cutest, well, sometimes it's sad, but it's also, like, in a lot of ways, the cutest thing you've ever seen. Um, what else have I been reading lately? Um I always love Smut Peddler. That's an erotica, so be careful there. But it has a lot of queer content. That's through Iron Circus Comics, and it's awesome. If you, it, the last issue, the last uh, edition was actually in 2014, but I know that you can get it on Iron Circus's um, uh, website. Um, 
And along with on the same website, you can get the ep- Lesson Epic Adventures of TJ and Amal, which is this road trip comic about, like, two strangers who end up falling in love. They are so cute. It's, a, it's uh, an adorable comic. Um, it's very music-based, which, I, which is, like, appreciating, which is very appreciable. Um, what else? That's cool. I feel like I heard of that and hadn't actually read it yet. Yeah, it's it's um it looks like it's lengthy when you first look at it and then you start reading it and you're like it's like you know it's good instantly because it's like it's so easy to read. You know what I mean? We're like this is so readable. It's going to go through, it's going to go fast. It's a great book for that reason. Hmm, interesting. Like and, I, I know that you have made sure that your your comic is going to be on um Distributed on Gumroad, mm-hmm. and we talked about why you were interested in it, in using Gumroad for readability reasons, basically for for online comics. Should probably get you to talk a little bit about that because I know that's a hang up a lot of folks have about reading comics online. Yeah, I know that they have a reader, for sure. Um, it's also they keep all of your downloads in one place. So when you have an account so that you can see everything that you own, it's like its own little um, little backpack, I guess you can say, of stuff that you can pick out and be like, oh, yeah, I have that. And then you just, like, you can either download the PDF or you can read it there. And um, it's just really convenient. It's convenient for the people who are buying on Gunroad, and it's convenient for the creators as well because the creators can set their own prices and they can – um, see who's paying what, and they can see how what their um, how popular the stuff is, and who checks it out. And then mm. the buyers are able to like pay as much as they want, um, uh, just by the parameters the creator set. So oh, it's, it's a really good little system. Yeah, I like it a lot. So when will people be in, uh, be able to start buying your comic on Gumroad? July twenty fifth. That's uh, as we're speaking next Tuesday. So. Very exciting. I'm excited. <laughs> Excellent. I'm really looking forward to being able to talk about it with a wider group of people because uh, I have read the whole comic, which I thought was really beautiful, and I'm glad we got to talk about it. And I'm um, excited to have our listeners be able to check it out then. Uh, what would be the best way for people to um, to buy to buy the comic? Was through um, like how, where, where where should folks be buying it online? It'll be gumroad.com backslash uh, Rebecca Epstein. And then you can reach me on Twitter uh, at Ray Stone. So that's R-A-Y-S-O-N-N-E. And I will be promoting the hell out of it so you'll know if it's the right person. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. And uh, that's also the right place to go to find all your different critical writing as well. Well, thank you for joining us, and um, I hope we'll be able to have you back on soon to talk about additional work that you're doing or uh, to join us in reviewing something. Oh, I would love to do that. that Yay. So much fun. <laughs> Yay. Well, have a great week, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sounds wonderful. Good night. Good night. And for... And for our listeners, uh, Brett is on his way to San Diego Comic-Con as we speak, entering the chasm of madness and so on and so forth. Uh, We will be back with you soon uh, with new San Diego Comic-Con 
content to debrief and uh, with more guests coming up as well. We are Graphic Policy Radio. If for some reason you started listening to this podcast a bit late and want to catch up, we will have the full thing. will be downloadable to you at, um, on our website soon. It will also be at Graphic Policy Radio on iTunes in just a couple of hours and SoundCloud for as long as that keeps on being a thing, as well as on Stitcher. Um, so if you missed the beginning of these episodes, it's not too late. You can go and check it out on those different platforms and share it as well. Uh, graphicpolicy.com, of course, is our home website. We're also Graphic Policy on Twitter. And I, Ilana, am always on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn on Twitter all the time. Always happy to talk with you there. And then um, and congratulations for everybody who's taken action so far against the completely terrifying health bill. Uh, that's being held up right now, but the fight is not over. It continues. Uh, but thank you for joining in. I know a lot of folks in comics have been really insistently calling their congressmen and their senators and do not stop now and do not limit your calls to that issue alone. We definitely are going to need you to keep activated on pretty much everything. (laughs) So uh, with that in mind, I will talk to you all next week and keep it geeky.